joining us now. He is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning host on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio, golf industry executive, and has interviewed everybody who's anybody in the golf industry. Matt Adams joins us. Matt, welcome Good into the morning, golf shop. Matt. Hey, Mark. Hey, Matt. How are you guys? Good, man. Doing awesome. All right, so you, you've interviewed just about everybody that you can possibly interview. Who, who's your favorite interviews of all time? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I, my personal opinion is, and I'm sure it's the same with you guys because you're in the same business, right, that every human being is a library, and I'm always fascinated by all the stories that people have in terms of their life's path or what led them to, say, significant victory. When it comes to the golf realm, I think through, you know, the Fairways of Life show, I, I think we've done 10,000 roughly interviews right now. Wow. And my guess would be if I had, if I had to rank them, uh, it's hard. I think I would put Charlie Sifford probably would be the one that affected me, that impacted me the most. And then the second one, or tied for first, I'm not even sure. I haven't. It's really hard to answer this one. It would probably be Arnold Palmer because we had a chance to sit down with Mr. Palmer not long before he passed away. And we think it was the last full-form, unstructured sit-down interview that he ever did. And so those would be those would be the two that would jump out at me. Nice. So speaking of uh, speaking of rivalries, uh, we've we've been hearing a lot this week about the Brooks Kepka, Rory McIlroy, and Brooks kind of downplayed it a little bit. Uh, some people might have thought he was a little disrespectful, but you know it's interesting. It's like we've been we've been craving for Brooks to, you know, engage with the media, and then he finally does, and we throw him under the bus. <laughs> so yeah, true. I think that's it, it, it's interesting, and I'm I'm sure tomorrow I'm I'm uh, posting morning drive with uh, Stuart Appleby, and I'm sure this is going to come up. In fact, right before I went on with you guys, I've been spending a ton of time studying Patel attendance because I'm sure you heard that. Brooks withdrew from the, the CJ Cup at Nine Bridges, and he's flying back to Florida. So from a world media, golf media standpoint, we won't even get a chance to feast on this subject at the Zozo, the new tournament in Japan next week, that Rory's going to be there. And Brooks, we thought, was going to be there. It would be this great opportunity to say, what do you think, what do you think? And now Brooks won't be there at all, which leaves us hungry. But this is the time of year we tend to build up a, an appetite for the golf that will come in the spring. But the, for me, I love when, when athletes give us a glimpse into who they really are, whether it's, you know, Steve Stricker or Bubba Watson weeping on the podium or whether it's Brooks Kepka or Rory McIlroy or Jordan Speed or at times Justin Thomas telling us precisely what's in their heart and in their mind. Uh, I do think it's a bit of a, of a conflict, which is the reason why I think we see athletes tend to get a little bit aggravated with us and, and tend, to, tend to get a little bit uh, off-putting, that you ask them to be honest, they are honest, then they get taken to task for it. And in Brooks' case, he doesn't strike me as one that, that gets put off by anybody. I just, I just think his nature is that he doesn't suffer fools and he's going, he feels like he's earned the right, and he has, to say what he wants to say and then let the chips fall where they will. Uh, I, I do think that what he said is probably going to be used as motivation for Rory McIlroy. I mean, if you were Rory McIlroy, wouldn't you take that as, as a clarion call? So I, I, th- I think it's a fascinating dynamic. Uh, to that point, though, I have to say, gents, that I like the fact that the current crop of players that we have that are dominating the game 
are honest with us because we, we went through two decades of predominantly Tiger and Phil who had a different philosophy. Their philosophy was more platitudes, where I'm going to release the message that I want you to carry forth for me instead of the message that good, bad, or indifferent, warts and all, is the message that's, that's in my heart on this particular day. So I like where the game is at right now, and I like the fact that we have these players that are honest with us. Matt, is it is it possible that that whole thing was contrived anyway, just to just to create something? It is. It's a hundred percent possible, but it's incredibly doubtful. Reason being that if Brooks, and Rory for that matter too, if either one of them in any way were inclined towards that form of commercialism, that that form of exploitation of the medium then I think we all would have been watching for the possibility of, wait a minute, is this real or is this nothing more than a pay-per-view, a boxing match where, where they go on a multi-city tour and insult each other for weeks in advance of trying to get us all to, to pay for the pay-per-view? In this case, I think Brooks answered an honest question, and his answer uh, was an honest answer too, but his answer was not about how it would impact Rory McElroy. His answer was about the fact that, once again, that huge chip that he channels that he carries on his shoulder and uses it for his competitive advantage was flaring again. And he, he simply asked the, answered the question of, do you think, paraphrasing, that there's a rivalry between you guys? And he said, what rivalry? He hasn't won a major in five years, and I've won four of them. So from that standpoint, when you break down what he said into its essence, it's true. When you break it down into overall playing ability and each week you show up, which one of the two of you looks like they have the ability to close, well, clearly it's, it's a rivalry, but it, perhaps it's more from a fan's perspective. I honestly think that he opened up for us and gave us his answer as to what his mindset is. And from the standpoint and the simplicity of the map and how he defined it, frankly, it's hard to, hard to argue with. No, and I, and I think I don't even believe it's a rivalry yet, just by virtue of what you just said. The, the thing that I was asking you about contrived was maybe he's doing that so that the press gets back on him so that creates you know some more motivation for him to go out and win more. I, I, that's, that's the way. I, maybe I'm thinking way too far out of the box, but that's just kind of <laughs> kind of how I see that. Yeah, the interesting thing with Brooks Kepka is that he has admitted the fact that if, if there is not already a slight there, and I think this is a reflection of what he views as yet another slight, if there isn't a slight already in place that, that's quite clear, he actually makes it up. And what I mean by that is, is that he will come up with a reason to be offended in order to channel himself. And again, you remember you mentioned Tiger and Phil. Tiger, incidentally, did the same thing for the entirety of his career. Tiger would always channel offense, whether it be definitive or perceived more so in the latter as his, as his career progressed. And it was, and that was why he had that unique relationship with he and Stevie on the golf course. And Stevie was more of a physical personification of it, whereas Tiger let the clubs do the talking almost exclusively during these years, where it was an us against the world. And that us against the world perspective, when you're talking about a game that's an individual game like golf, is obviously very powerful if you can channel it to back it. So, Matt, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, a little bit about Brooks Kepka. I'm sitting here, you know, we've got the President's Cup that's uh, much later than it usually is, and Ryder Cup or President's Cups are, are usually, we've already played them at this point. But um, 
Are you concerned about the American team? I mean, we Dustin Johnson, knee injury, hasn't played. Uh, now Brooks Kepka, we thought was coming back, uh, going back to Florida, knee injury. Um, guys that we're looking for to make a statement, Ricky Fowler hasn't played. Um, you know, Tiger Woods, maybe picking himself, hasn't played. Um, you know, there, Justin Thomas at least playing well this week. Uh, there's a concern for me on this President's Cup team. They've lost once, and they've lost in this same location. I'm worried about this team going down to Australia and coming back with the Cup. Yeah, I think there's good reason to be worried. Uh, one, because the, the President's Cup team on the international side is as motivated as they've ever been. They desperately want to win. That was a foundation that's always been there, but it reached a heightened crescendo during the captaincies of Nick Price. They know that they want to represent themselves outside of Europe, the United States, as the best golfers in the world, and they know that they have the talent to do it. So when you have motivation that is backed by other factors that you've noted, where, you, for example, Ricky Fowler's not even on the team yet, Tiger's not even on the team yet, uh, Patrick Reed is not on that team, Gary Woodland is not on that team, Tony Finau's not on that team, and those that are on the team, there's some bumps and bruises that go with a condensed schedule in a very intense period of golf that's going to become even more intense in 2020 because we have both the Olympics back in the, in the calendar and we have a Ryder Cup year to boot. So there's, there's no rest for the weary that lies in store. So, yeah, I think the caution that you have and the concern that you have for what faces the American President's Cup team is well-founded. I think it's going to make for an absolutely fascinating competition as a result and on some level i think most people that you talk to you know i think most level-headed people aside from the from the cheering side just as my side your side what have you i think it would be good for the international president's cup team to win i think it would be healthy for the competition uh, matt the reason we wanted to talk to you today was really about the book, uh, The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. This thing is, this book is absolutely beautiful. And I mean, it's got all the information about every great player that's ever played golf. How did you, how, how did you start this project and, and what was the motivation behind it? You know, this book, uh, The Golf Round I'll Never Forget, was my 12th book that I've written. And whenever someone asks me the question of, you know, how long did it take or when did you start? Or, and I always like to say, you know, this, this book was, was 50 years in the writing, and that's just my work on it. The oldest story that's in the book is from Gene Sarazen and the shot heard around the world in 1935 at a little event called the Augusta National Invitational, of course, later to become the Masters. And when I started in the business, I didn't start on the media side. I started on the golf equipment and the, and the golf course operations side. Those were the two sides of the game that, that I became, you know, I cut my teeth on. And so I was, I was working uh, in the green grass side of the game, and I bumped into, in the, when I was a young man, I bumped into Gene Sarazen. And obviously he was an old man at the time, and I'm sure he got asked every day of his life about, his albatross at 15 at, at that event. And, but he, he wasn't reticent. Maybe it was because I was a younger guy. He didn't have any problem talking to me and kind of seeing someone on their own path. And he spoke to me about the fact that he wasn't at the first one in 1934, but Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen were both dear friends of his. And so he promised that he would be at the second one. And he explained to me, and I, and, and there's some things, and maybe that's why I, I, I 
I delved into the, the media side of the game ultimately in my career, that, that they stick in your brain. And this conversation was always in my mind all these years about how we spoke about how we used a Wilson Forwood. And, and again, remember, I was, I was an equipment guy. He explained to me it had like this scalloped top out of it and the way that it was built. And it sounded very much to me like a modern hybrid. And I, I thought to myself, isn't it ironic because Gene Sarazen is known as the guy who popularized, popularized the use of the sand wedge, so much so that when he had it at the open, he would put it in with the club head down and the grip sticking up so that officials wouldn't see this high-lofted glove in his bag and deem it illegal. Uh, he, I, he had no, I don't know why he thought they would do that, but he was nervous about it. And he told me that's what he did. So, but he hit this forward onto the green, and it was a different, little bit of a different fronting than it is now. Not a little bit, a lot different fronting now. And the day before, he tried it and didn't make it. And this day, he, he hit it, and it bounded up, and he made it. And it was this incredible story. And then he told me the part of it that, that meant the most to him was that everyone talks about it now like there were tens of thousands of people out there. There wasn't. But the people that were out there was the one he was playing alongside of Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones, who had made his way down from the clubhouse and saw it happen, witnessed his friend have this albatross. And what people don't realize is that, too, did not secure his victory at the event. It only only brought him into a lead, and he would go into a playoff the next day that ultimately he would win, uh, ironically laying up the next day on the same hole. But nonetheless, he he would win that that Masters in a playoff. And And it reminds me of the... The high pitching shot of, of Ben Hogan in 1950 with the one iron at Marion, and again everyone believing that that one instance, that one flash, that one capture of a moment in time was a moment of victory, was was a moment of triumph. It wasn't. It was it was a moment of resolution because for for Ben Hogan, he didn't even have that one iron. It was stolen from his bag that night, and he went into a playoff again the next day, which ultimately he won. Which also, from an author's standpoint, makes you wonder how many times did unbelievable things take place that we never heard about because right. ultimately they didn't win the playoff or they didn't make the final yeah. puck or what have you. Yeah, just, just yeah man. How, how can one how can one shot determine you know that you want or that you're going to win or not? I just out of 288 yeah. strokes, I'm, how can it be one shot? So, yeah. Matt, man, we appreciate you coming on with us, spending a little bit of time. Uh, hopefully we can catch up with you again soon, and uh, we'll remind everybody of uh, the golf round. I'll never forget. Go find it wherever you buy books. You guys are awesome. Thank you.